Hello, everybody. Dr. Rick Wallace dropping in on you. I hope that everybody is having a good week so far. We're at the midpoint for us in this week. Uh, remember that no matter where you're at, if you're still breathing, you're still in the fight. Uh, I tell my clients that all the time. If you're still breathing, you're still in the fight. And that means that no matter how it looks right now, that if you take on a mindset that you're going to have an impact in a positive way on your life and the lives of others, then there is nothing that can stop you. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm telling you that things worth having normally come with a, a demand for intensive effort uh, and extreme commitment, but it happens. I wanted to just share that with you. Uh, I've been really pushing to try to do more lives, but it is crazy going right here, as you guys know. I got a good, uh, I think I reported this to you guys, but I, I had a good uh, six-month checkup uh, with my cardiologist, you know, following the heart attacks, plural, uh, in March. So uh, good morning, good morning, everybody. So that was good, but I still have a long way to go. So there's a lot of um, task management, time management, where I was going every day, seven days a week from 4 a.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, that has definitely been curtailed. Uh, Marion is on me. I'm being more aware of what I'm doing. So you can imagine uh, there's a lot of things that's still on deck uh, with less time. And so managing it, uh, processing it, prioritizing it, there's a lot of that going on. And so it's been a little bit more difficult to get these lives in, uh, despite the fact that it's an extremely important part of what I do. And I get joy out of actually getting to interact with you guys versus recording something and then uploading it. Uh, but it is what it is. We've got to do that. Before I get started on what we're going to talk about today, I want to kind of give a prelude, actually, uh, because it's directly connected. But I want to share with you, uh, for those of you who... Uh, haven't heard. This is book number 22, uh, The Undoing of the African-American Mind, an Introduction to uh, Collective Bias Reality Syndrome, um, a study that I did based off a theory I had concerning Black behavior. It is the uh, follow-up to uh, book number 19. Uh, book number 19 is Born in Captivity, Psychopathology as a Legacy of Slavery. Uh, the link to get the book as an end, uh, as a loaner or as a part of a bundle is in there. You can also get this book. Uh, there's a link a little further down in the description box where you can get this book. Uh, this is number 19. This is number 22. Um, I definitely want to talk about where those books uh come from why I felt it was a need to write those books uh, and where I'm at right now with the work we're doing the Odyssey Project. I also, uh, good morning, Derek. I also want to encourage you guys to support the work we do. If you look in the chat box, you'll see uh, information where you can support the work we do. Uh, believe it or not, for me to write each one of those books, you're talking about thousands, thousands of hours of research, um, literally, I don't know how many books read, scholarly papers read, my own work uh, you know, as far as compiling data and observation and research uh, to come up with what's there. The beautiful thing about that is that I believe we have a solution. I'm not one of those people that spend my time to talk I didn't spend 30 plus years learning what I've learned about my community so I can go around and give lectures on what's wrong with us. Uh, while I think it's important for us to understand what's wrong, my goal is to find a solution. And I believe in solutions. I don't believe that there's a problem on this planet that there is not an answer for. It. The thing is, when you focus on the problem, you feel the problem and you don't. Don't don't align, align yourself up with achieving or finding or creating a solution. You have to be solution minded. You have to be solution based. You have to be strategy minded. You have to be willing to think outside of the box because the box is a confinement. The box is something that says it, it, this is the only way that can do it. So if you can't do it this way, it can't be done. That's not true. Anything that can be done in the box means you have to get outside of the box to do it. And that's what 
I've done my entire life, whether it's been in business, whether it's been in relationships, whether it's been in the study of my people. You know, my all of this started 30 plus years ago with a question. How are we 100 plus years removed from slavery and we've made no progress? You know, the arguments that people on the other side had that, come on, it's been 100 years. Well, relatively speaking, 100 years is a sharp period of time to undo 400 years of oppression and trauma. But you have to understand the process of generational trauma and multi, the transmission of multi-generational trauma to understand how that works and why we're still dealing with the fallout of slavery from a psychological, sociological, and even emotional and physical perspective. And so both of those books deal with it from uh, a collective thinking process. Uh, uh, a thought of collective thought bias, a cognitive bias. It also deals with it from a perspective of the physiological influences. Uh, when I started, um, there was a need to, first of all, validate what others had suggested. Uh, there was uh, Dr. Francis Crest Welsing, who by large inspired me to take on the role of understanding my people from a way of thought processes and psychology. Um, this was back in 1985 when she appeared on the Phil Donahue show. I was a junior in high school and I was totally enamored by her intellect in a white room with white men defending her dissertation, um, the Crest theory of color confrontation, her thesis on the conflicts between whites and blacks and and it, it was highly controversial, but it was also on the heels of this black inferiority theory that hit in the late 70s and the early 80s, where they were using uh, IQ tests of high school students to say that high school whites, white high school students tested on average 15 uh, IQ points higher than blacks. Um, and we we addressed that in my book as well, that basically if we're talking solely solely on intellect, blacks rate equal or higher, uh, depending. Uh, but when you use vocabulary as a measurement, that's definitely not an intellect thing. That's a learned thing. That's something that you learn. That's environmental. Obviously, if you're going to measure a person's intellect based off of a certain uh, uh, linguistic model, and the linguistic model is of those people who created it. And then the children you're comparing to it are those children of the people who created it. They're obviously going to test higher in that area. And that's where the greatest disparity in points were, was coming from. But anyway, Dr. Welsing, on the heels of this inferiority, Black intellectual, let me make sure I make that right, Black intellectual inferiority. On the heels of this, I mean, this is this comes in in the early 80s. This is the mid 80s. So right off of it, here's this black woman intelligently defending her thesis and I mean, holding her own in the room of white men. And so I was taken back. And so I started my quest to learn about human behavior. Uh, from that, I, I was introduced to Neely Fuller Jr., who mentored Dr. Webster. After that, it was Dr. Naeem Agbar. Uh, who played a major role in dissecting Eurocentric uh, psychology to amass and create uh, a Black model or Afrocentric model. Dr. Amos Wilson, who played another major role. And then on the line, all of the other monumental figures that helped to shape my thinking. But it, it, it required, and, 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 and Dr., uh, I can't forget Dr. Jarrah DeGray, uh, most people know her for post-traumatic slave syndrome, but I've had the chance of uh, immersing myself in her work that deals with uh, African-American adolescent and young adult male violence. Uh, the respect mechanism, the respect element and component in that, as well as the socialization component in that, the predictability of violence. I got a lot from that in the building out of what I have now as Black Men Lead. Uh, what I'm trying to get to get to get you to understand first and foremost is that you don't just pop up and say, OK, this is happening and not have an idea of how it takes years of understanding. It takes years of understanding of what's going on. It, you know, you, you know, some of the work that was done by France Fanon is, 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 is so important. 
even though it was decades ago that it was done, in understanding the human mind, the human psyche, the cognitive impact of being an oppressed people for so long, and then having such exposure to mechanisms like media propaganda that suggest certain things about yourselves. Right. Uh, you're exactly right. Linguistics used between whites is a cultural thing, but it was being used as a universal measuring tool uh, in a measuring intellect outside of their culture uh, and using those results as a way of uh, suggesting that they were uh, intellectually superior. Uh, we now know that not to be the case. But anyway, what I did is I decided, you know, I needed to really, truly have an understanding of why we weren't progressing. I knew too many gifted people. I knew too many smart people. I knew too many uh, resourceful people. We're extremely resourceful. Uh, we can do almost anything. If you really trace back history, most of the, uh, the advances in technology and industry was actually on our backs and our minds. Uh, we don't have Edison's light bulb without Latimer's filament, and we never talk about it. But I said, okay, if we have all this, why are we here? And so I came up with this theory of collective cognitive bias reality syndrome. In other words, that was this collective thought process that created these biased beliefs that pointed us towards the belief that we were less, the belief that we were powerless, the belief that we had no real true control or sovereignty in our own well-being. And that sought us to seek a place at the table. And that you see it so much. That's what Dr. King meant when he said we're integrating into a burning house. We fought hard to get into a place that was never ours instead of thinking of creating ours. And I also looked at uh, the, the, the psychopathology of whites. I noticed that there is something that that's a historical mark. If you look at Slocum, if you look at Rosewood, if you look at Tulsa, which is known as Black Wall Street, if you look at Wilmington, all these places where these major, what they call race riots happened, which were really actually massacres, it happened in highly uh, black affluent, black progressive communities where blacks had come together and realized they did have power. They were economically viable on their own. They destroyed it. So that tells me if they're consistently destroying it, that's something they fear. And then there is something possible and powerful in it. So I just started to just discover that. But in the, 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 the attempt to take what Dr. DeGray, uh, did with, uh, Dr. DeGru, I always call it Dr. DeGray. I'm sorry, but it's actually Dr. DeGru. But anyway, uh, what she did with post-traumatic slave syndrome is she talked about multi-generational transmission of trauma, but I needed to take it further. I needed to understand it in a more in-depth way if I was going to be a part of the solution. So what I started to research was trauma uh, associated with what most people saw as the most recent atro atrocity, and that was the Jewish Holocaust. And I started to look at, there was a, this thing, a study called epigenetics and how epigenetic uh uh, tags, which are these impressions upon your DNA and your genes from your environmental experiences can literally be passed on to your project. You can literally pass trauma down genetically. But more importantly, as you experience trauma in your own life, it impacts your genes. It upregulates certain genes and it downregulates certain genes. This is another part uh, of epigenetics that is often misunderstood. So you understand that you create epigenetic tags based on highly emphatic traumatic experiences, meaning that if the experience is traumatic enough to traumatize you, something can be traumatic and not traumatize you. And there's a bunch that goes off into that. But if it's strong enough or powerful enough that it actually traumatizes you, it creates this tag. This tag, in some instances, can be cleaned away through the reproductive processes of my, uh, meiosis, which is uh, reproductive cell reproduction. Uh, that normally happens. That's why a woman has a cycle once a month. If the ovum is not uh, fertilized by the male sperm, it's passed out and we start over. It's a way of giving the progeny a new lease on life so that it doesn't take on all of the genetic uh, baggage from the, pre from the pro progenitor. However, if it's emphatic enough, it's passed down. It may not be as emphatic as it was for the progenitor, but it is passed down. 
So that was the first part. So you can actually have genes passed down, but there's a second element of epigenetics, and that is environmental influence over time. In other words, they studied two identical twins over the course of their lives, and they found that, you know, there's a reason why as twins get older, they become more distinguished, distinguishable. You can start to tell them apart. It's because the life experiences are creating two distinctive re uh, realities with identical genetics, with identical DNA. In other words, an identical twin came from the same ovum that split. It's identical in DNA. Uh, and so what happens is in this DNA uh, that's identical, there are, it shows that experiences can change genetic uh, expression without changing the genetic sequence or DNA sequence. What does that mean? Everybody's born with uh, disease genes. It all depends on whether the gene is ever uh, opened up and upregulated to express itself. Uh, how the DNA is read by each gene is based also on experience. What am I getting at? There's this thing called adverse childhood experiences uh, that I am going to be immensely involved in over the next 10 years at least in coming up with solutions to help our children deal with what they're dealing with so that they don't take that into adulthood and then pass it on to their children. Um, but in these adverse childhood experiences, there are these things called ACEs, an adverse childhood experience. It can be anything from uh, being uh, exposed to abuse, whether it's physical, sexual, emotional, uh, whether it's having a parent, parents uh, separate or divorce, whether it's having a parent become incarcerated, whether it's having a parent that is dealing with uh, mental illness, whether it's having a parent that's struggling with some form of addiction. Uh, these are what you call adverse childhood experiences. And with these adverse childhood experiences, they each get a point. If you have a parent who's an addict, that's a point. If you have a parent who's carcinated, that's a point. What we find now is that any child with an A score of four or higher has some serious issues because they come with lifelong health outcome consequences. In other words, the studies show now that a child with a score of four will have two and a half times more likely to be depressed, two and a half times more likely to develop diabetes, three times more likely to develop ischemic heart disease, which is the number one killer in America, coronary heart disease. Uh, also, 12 times more likely to attempt suicide. And that's just at the surface. There's so much more that of, of long-term life, and this is long after. And so there are so many elements, I'm not going to get into it, but Again, this is environmental. Now, here's what happens, and people don't understand this. When you have a traumatic experience, when you're going through something, and it is intense enough to be considered traumatic experiences, one of, just let's say anything with an ACE uh, that's considered an, uh, an actual adverse childhood experience. You, you deal with it in, in, in adulthood or childhood, but in childhood, you're still in the developmental phases of developing your mind and your brain. So now you're hardwiring your brain based off of your experiences which not only means you're going to go through the adverse childhood experience, you're also going to wire the brain to behave and respond the way you respond to it. So if it makes you anxious, if it makes you stressful, if it makes you uh, unhinged, you'll go around and naturally be that way because now the behavior is hardwired into your brain. Uh, you, you will automatically expect things to go. You have a fear of, of uh foreshortened future, uh, so many other things that come along. You will become hypervigilant. So many things that have come along associated with PTSD is also going to be a part of this complex uh, traumatic narrative. Now, you've got all this going on. Let's let's look at it and back up a little bit. What is this? What does adverse childhood experiences really produce? Uh, basically, you're looking at the most primitive part of the brain, the rept what's sometimes called the reptilian brain. It is the part that is designed to help you survive. Well, you got to think this brain existed, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, at least. Uh, and what it was designed to do at that time was to make sure you survived each day. So when you go out to get your food, if there's a saber toothed tiger in the woods or hiding behind the cliff, whatever is going on, uh, the hair on the back of your neck stands up. Your body immediately senses danger. It, uh, it sends a signal to the uh, hypothalamus. Hypothalamus sends a signal to the adrenal gland. The adrenal gland starts to release stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, 
the heart rate starts to rise. The body starts to pull blood flow from 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 uh, other important organs like the prefrontal cortex of your brain and your heart um, and, and your lungs, and, and, and it sends it to your extremities. So where the oxygen is most needed to either fight or run, that's why we call it the fight or flight response. Now it's there. Now in a short burst of say seconds, that's absolutely okay. It's what's going to save your life. It's going to save your life. So if you're out in the woods and you come upon a bear, you're going to have this stress response. Uh, now, the truth of the matter is, in a realistic scenario, the chance of you outrunning a bear is pretty much nil. Uh, uh, bears can get up to 35, depending on what bear, get up to 35 miles per hour. But it can put you in a situation where you can run to get to a place that allows you to get that, you know, wherever you're going. If the distance between you and the bear is shorter than the distance you're in safety, you can get there. Um, also, maybe you can climb. If it's a grizzly bear, they're not good climbers. Uh, black bears are very good climbers, so climbing is not going to get you out of the way of a black bear. But the, the key element is the fear response puts you in a place of uh, being able to defend yourself in short periods. Here's the problem. What happens when the bear is at home every night? What happens when the bear is an abusive father? What happens if the bear is an abusive mother? What happens if the, the bear is walking through a drug-infested community dealing with gangs? What happens when there is a constant and consistent threat and now the body is in threat response almost all of the time? Now the very thing that was meant to save you will kill you. It will slowly destroy you. Cortisol and large amounts in the body attacks the organs. Then the mental and emotional elements and components, especially of a young child who is still in the uh, developmental years, is developing a case of chronic stress and chronic response and fear response to almost everything. Now there are these outcomes that come from it that impact their long-term life health outcomes. That's what these books are about. That's what the program and research I'm doing at the Odyssey Project is about. That's what I'm trying to do. Uh, don't forget, while, while it's still on my mind, don't forget that uh, we're still trying to uh, set up this 15-city tour where I want to go around and help people set up these programs. Uh, Black Men Lead, uh, get Restoring Ghettos Forgotten Daughters, programs that will allow them to address the needs of the community as it pertains specifically to our children, but also to community development, some programs that we have for that as well. And so I started this a while ago. We tried to get it going. Obviously, my goal is to get it to where we can go into these communities that need us and not put the financial burden on the community because they may not have it. Uh, so I've been trying to raise funds for that. That hasn't turned out uh, well at all but we're consi consistently moving on. So again, show your support um, with that. But anyway, back to the research. There's so much that has to be understood. One of the things that I can tell you when I study uh, the outcome of the Jewish Holocaust and why Jews were able to recover, and it's easy to talk about the financial support they got, which is a major part of it. But they also were willing to admit that something was wrong. The generation that actually experienced the Holocaust had a subsequent uh, generation of children born that were not alive when the Holocaust took place, but were the descendants of people who were there. And there were these children who were actually having dreams of things that happened to their parents and grandparents that were never told to them. Again, this is what brought in the study and understanding of epigenetics and how powerful gene uh, expression is in the way we live our lives, the way we interpret life and so much more. And so in looking in that, what we find is that there is so much to be understood about the experiences of our people in the way that they're passing down uh, trauma, in the way that we are experiencing life each and every day. My goal has been to come up with solutions. The one thing I can say about the Jews is they were willing to acknowledge that something wasn't right. And they were willing to invest into getting some answers so that they could actually improve. And they have had a shorter run of it. Now, granted, their 12-year ordeal 
it, with their Holocaust is not something that you can compare with what we experienced from 1619 and actually at some level still experiencing. You know, we have to talk about trauma, but we traumatic memory, but we also must talk about traumatic re-injury. The fact that we're still being traumatized. We're still watching black men shot and killed, unarmed black men shot and killed. Uh, and, and, and one of the things that I look out of it that's a part of the uh, programming and conditioning is how easily we throw hours away. We will find any reason to justify them being killed uh, so that we're not pushed upon, upon with the demand for standing up and demanding justice on their behalf. Uh, I look at, and I, I, I'm not forgiving anybody a pass for antisocial behavior. I think anybody that does anything antisocial within the black construct or the black culture or the black community has to be held accountable at the highest level. I think that that's where it starts. We have to hold our own accountable. We've got to make them responsible for their behaviors, criminal behaviors, uh, hostile and harsh behaviors, the mistreatment of our women, the mistreatment of our children, the mistreatment of our elderly. I think that all of that has to be handled. Well, here's the thing that we have to understand. We're dealing with an enemy that will co-sign complete BS by their own solely to keep their own from being consumed by us. Prime example, look at the videos that are on this page. I don't have a whole lot of white trolls until I go after a white person. Long as I'm talking about what we're doing in the community, long as I'm talking about things we need to be worried about, even when it comes down to police shootings, no big deal. I made one video about uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. And I've had to clean up the thread because white people showed up. What You can still look at uh, the performance of the video. And obviously it's Laura, not that I care, uh, but obviously it's Laura. It shows, they show up and defend and they come up with some unbelievably crazy ass excuses of why it was okay. And deep down inside, you got to say, you have to know that it's not okay. No, it wouldn't be okay if I did it, but because Kyle did it and not, what I want you to get to un get you to understand here, in the grand scope of things within the white construct, Kyle is considered white trash. Not by me, by his own people. White trash or trailer trash. That's what he's considered. And yet they come to his defense. See, that's called getting on code. That's called programming. That's called putting the greater good of the race ahead of personal. They would never go anywhere with Kyle. They wouldn't even sit down and talk to him. They wouldn't give him the time of day, but they're going to defend him. They're already raising money to defend him. While we have been conditioned to find any reason whatsoever to throw hours away. And again, let me make myself clear. I'm not saying we give hours a pass, but we got to be careful. at how we respond to things because we are dealing in a war. There's a war being waged on so many different levels. There's a war for our children's mind that we're losing. There's an economic war being waged. There's a political war being waged and it's being waged in a way that they're preying on our weaknesses. And the core studies that, 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 that underwrite what I shared with you started as early back as the mid, early to mid nineties. This isn't new. So the ability to actually change some of these outcomes have been there. But there's been very little to no effort. There are a couple of models out there, but they're very uh, on a very small scale. There are answers and solutions to deal with adverse childhood experiences. They're just not simply becoming the part of normal practice or best practice. The same thing with so many other areas. The solutions are out there. I've spent years and countless hours doing research to come up with solutions. And so... I am about empowerment. We can sit up and we can point fingers all day. But if we haven't taken uh, the initiative to strengthen ourselves, if we haven't taken the initiative to empower ourselves, it rests on us. Uh, one of my most popular uh, quotes 
is an African proverb that says, if there's no enemy on the inside, the enemy on the outside can do us no harm. We make ourselves vulnerable because we're not dealing with internal issues. We're not investing in ourselves. We're not looking to build for ourselves. We're study expecting those who have oppressed us to empower us. Those who benefit from our oppression to empower us. Those who literally have, have built their lives off of our suffering. We're, we're consistently asking them to say, okay, now let me in. We've built you this country on our backs uh, uh, in the beginning with no compensation. And then after that, with very little compensation, uh, mass incarceration. Uh, so much is built in prisons now. Where in places like Texas, there is no salary for for workers. They get what's called good time. Now, check this out just, just, just to get you an idea. How they, they get good time. What good time is for every day that you do and you don't get in trouble and you report to work and you do everything you're told, you get an, a, you get a day also of good time, which means that you serve almost roughly uh, you get uh, two for one. So basically, when your good time and your actual time each equals your full sentence, you don't have to be paroled unless there is a certain circumstance or your crime is what's called an aggravated crime, meaning that there were other uh, circumstances that makes it, you know, worse than it normally would. It's aggravated. Then it wouldn't apply to you. But anyway, so now you, you've reached uh, your time where it's mandatory. It's called mandatory release. Well, you get your mandatory release, but on the way out the door, they make you sign away your good time and they put you on parole. So you earned the right to be free but they put you on mandatory parole and very uh, a large number of those people end up back in the system on what's called technical violations. They didn't actually break the law, but they did something that they weren't supposed to based off of the conditions of their parole. And so they'd be back in. Then there are other places in other states where they do get paid a dollar, 25, two twenty-five, whatever to do it. So then you still are looking at ways in which America is being, I mean, held up by cheap labor and in Texas, you know, very cheap labor. Uh, and I'm pretty sure some that, that way in some other states. But with that being said, we are responsible for creating programs that pull our men out of that cycle of recidivism. Do you realize that uh, when it comes to incarcerated individuals that are released, they are 75% likely to reoffend and end up back in the system within three years of being released. 75%. It's not by accident. And we can talk about decisions all you want to. You have to actually have decisions. You have to actually have choices to make good decisions. There are three ways. Let me make this clear. Three ways that you earn a living to support yourself and your family. Income which means you either work for somebody or you work for yourself. If something going on in a situation like it is now where unemployment is at its highest level in years and you're sitting up and you can't find a job for whatever reason and you can't, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to do the business thing, it's not taking off, so you can't get that. The next option is subsidies, social subsidies, which most men don't qualify for. But in the case you do, but you don't actually qualify. So you can't get that. The only other alternative is crime. You have to feed yourself and your family. And the system knows this. And there are ways to deal with it. But they're not going to deal with it because they benefit from it. So then what must happen? We must be willing to do what's necessary. We must be willing to invest in ourselves. We must be willing to elevate ourselves. We must be willing to put into our children. We must be willing to deal with and provide interventive mechanisms to intervene when it comes to adverse, adverse childhood experiences. It's simple. There's seven primary ACEs. Some count as many as 10, but there are seven primary ACEs. This is a questionnaire that can be completed at any health checkup. And once you have that as a health checkup, you know that that child has a higher risk of a number of different health outcomes of the course of their life, including cancer. Did you know that cancer requires that 
approximately 11 to 12 genes be upregulated at the same time and activated and turned on. Literally, and in, in, in most of those are turned on environmentally. While carcinogens play a role in uh, upregulating cancer genes, a great deal of it is environment. Stress is a major in- contributor. Worry, anxiety, trauma increases the proclivity for those genes to click on. And when enough of them click on, you get the disease. Heart disease is another one. Diabetes, hypertension is huge. There's a reason why black people tend to suffer from hypertension at a higher rate than other races. We have to understand how this applies to us. We're not going to win by wishing. I don't have no problem with praying. I think praying has its place. My thing and my way I view prayer, I view prayer as a revelatory uh, operation. It's not where you get the results. It's where you get the awareness. It's your connecting, finding the frequency and the vibration of God and connecting and communicating and getting the answers for what you need in order to accomplish what you want. That's prayer. Prayer is two, twofold. Something else that I teach uh, uh, religious clients or spiritually practicing clients uh, is that when all your prayer consists of is you talking, my question is, at what point are you listening? Communication is a two-way thing. And I have found that when I'm communicating with the most high, the most high is all-knowing and the most high is within me. So then I have the ability to know. I simply must connect to the mind of God and allow it to open up to me. But I can't do that if I'm stuck. And here's the other problem. If I'm constantly telling God or the most high or whatever, what's wrong, guess what I'm doing? I'm repeating what's wrong in my mind, in my thoughts, in my speech. I'm lowering my vibration. I'm disconnecting with the most high because the most high exists at the highest level. The highest level. So then if I am studying going to go and this is going on and that's going on and this is going on, I'm driving my vibration down. I'm driving my frequency. And that can literally be scientifically measured on a hertz scale, what your frequency is, which tells you what your vibration is. And if you're below 500, you're, 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 you're problematic. But most of the stuff that we get through, stress, worry, anxiety, bitterness, fear, jealousy, 200 or lower. You want to be 500 or higher. And then the awesome thing about this whole thing is that at the highest level is when I'm actually in a state of enlightenment where I'm learning. That's 700. You got 500 for love, 550 to 600 for gratitude and being grateful and being thankful. And all of this positive stuff is at 500 or greater. And then 700 and greater is I'm learning something. I'm receiving something. Because what happens every time you receive something you don't know, it comes with possibilities. When you learn something new, you get to use it in a way that it hasn't happened before because you didn't know it. And so there's a new opportunity, a new possibility, a new hope. Again, elevating the frequency. But in essence, it's not about how much you say in a prayer. It's about what you are able to connect with, with the most high in God and hear. That's revelation. Most people are praying for God to deliver them from the giants that they were designed to slay. You are never going to be delivered from responsibility in this world. So praying for it is an absent act. What you should be praying for is answers. What you should be praying for is vision. What you should be praying for is opportunity. That will present itself and then you still have to take action. Faith without works is dead. You cannot sit up and think you're going to pray your way out of something that you were meant to fight your way out of. Work your way out of. Think your way out of. Persist your way out of. You're going to have to be willing to do that. That's why I've spent the last 30 years doing the research. That's why I spent the last 30 years being committed to it when it seems like nobody else was caring. Nobody else was supporting my work. Nobody else. I kept going because at the end of the day, when I leave this place, I want to leave on E. 
I don't want to leave knowing that that was a book I could have wrote. I don't want to leave knowing that that was a program I could have created. I don't want to leave knowing that that was research that I could have done in a way that no one else could do. I didn't want to leave anything under. I'm not taking any of this stuff that's implanted in me to the grave. I'm going empty, sold out. That's why I work and put everything on the line and I live my life on full. I've had to make some adjustments because of those heart attacks and I'm taking better care of myself, but I'm not going to sit around and meander through life because it's easier. I'm not going to be one of those people who've learned how to navigate this racial caste system and do pretty good for myself and, and act like, you know, I was seeing something and, and, and have the audacity to say, I'm not depressed. I don't know what they're talking about. Some of the things that we can be paid off to do or we can get comfortable enough to do, that's never going to be me. I'm never going to sit up and say, because I figured it out, or I'm doing better than most. I'm okay. Because yeah, doing what I do comes with a little resistance. It comes with a threat. They don't like the idea of enlightenment. So I get pushed back all the time, but I cannot leave this world knowing that I sit down and I settled for the sake of comfort. And so I'm challenging every last one of you guys. I'm challenging you to stand up and actually invest in yourselves, in your children, in your community, in work that's being done on behalf of them. Stand up and be what you can be. That's something on the inside of every last one of you that the world needs. There's something on the very inside of you that only you have. You've been convinced to be like everybody else. You've been ostracized. Matter of fact, when someone won't, when somebody shows up and they're different, they're ridiculed. When somebody shows up and they're different, they're ostracized, they're laughed at, they're talked about. And so it makes everybody want to fit in. Your value is not in fitting in. Your value is in standing out and being what you were designed to be because that's the place where people are going to get what they need that only you can deliver. Your value is in producing the thing that will bless the world in only the way you can. In your home, in your relationships, in your business, in your finances, in social gathering, social constructs, and in every area of life, you've got to be the best you that you can possibly be. So, look, I'm asking again, we need your support. Research isn't cheap. It's not free. But at the same point in time, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to do what I got to do. If you haven't gotten the books, this is book number 19, Born in Captivity, Psychopathology, A Legacy of Slavery. This is book number 22, The Undoing of the African-American Mind, An Introduction to Collective Bias Reality Syndrome. Um, and there's so much in each of these books. Um, and it's it's been a long journey. I remember my first book. Uh, the Invisible Father, Reversing the Curse of a Fatherless Generation. Um, it came from an article that my high school journalism teacher, uh, who was married to my football coach, uh, asked me to do. They were like my surrogate parents. I was reared by my great-grandparents. My grandmother's parents reared me. And while they did a good job of providing for me, the age difference left a lot lacking in participating in things that you do with your kids. Uh, my grandfather never paid, played catch with me and all that kind of stuff. You know, my grandfather grew up in a home where at seven years old, he had to leave school in the second grade to go out into the fields with his father, who was a sharecropper, just to make ends meet. So that kind of mindset doesn't make up for the most affectionate, let's get out and do all this. But he was there. He showed me he loved me in other ways. I never had to question it. But Miss Leonard and her husband, Coach Leonard, took me under their wings, brought me to their home on weekends, spent time with me. And she knew the fact that I never knew my father, that I had, that by the time I got to high school, my father had passed away. And the first time I saw him was at his funeral. See, I've lived a lot of what I deal with with children. So I understand what they're going through. I know what an absent father can do, even when you've got a strong male figure in the house. It doesn't answer the question of why wasn't I good enough? You've got you to work that out. And so she asked me, she said, write an article 
for the school newspaper because it's other children like you. Well, when I wrote the article, she liked it so much, she pushed it and actually uh, got Teen Magazine at the time, which is a national publication, to publish it. Uh, the Forward Times, which is a local publication here in Houston, published it. And so I, I, I became a published uh, writer uh, at, what, 16. And so it, I said, man, I'm going to write a more in-depth on that because I found so much out about myself in writing that article. It took a while to get to the book, but I wrote it, The Invisible Father, Reversing the Curse of a Fatherless Generation. And that's still a part of my work is reversing that because taking Black men out of the lives of their children, whether it's voluntarily, whether it's involuntarily, whether it's forcibly, it doesn't matter. It leaves a void that hurts the next generation. We've got to fix that. That's a big part of what I talk about in restoring the black family. The black family is the institution through which black fit, um, uh, interests and principles, values, interests and principles are taught and inculcated into the mind of a child at a level that it can't be extracted. And if you don't have that solid foundation and environment, it destroys opportunities. Uh, the Kindle part is coming up. I haven't started uh, doing the Audible thing yet, but I'm I'm working on that. But yeah, each one of those will eventually be uh, available on Kindle. Some of the books that I have are you can you can get for re any reading device at Barnes and Noble. Um, I think uh, the Miseducation of Black Youth is available for Kindle and uh, Nook and. Uh, also, the the, the, the uh, print copy is available, uh, but I'm working on all of that. Um, at the end of the day, look, guys, um, you got to leave this world and give an account uh, for what you left behind. That's why I work so intensively on what I do. It's because I'm working to leave a legacy. I, I tell people all the time, the first half of my life was about me. It was about me proving I could do something that nobody in my family had done before, that I could amass some things that nobody in my community had did before. And I was going to live my life on my terms. And I, I, I reached my 30s having done pretty much that and yet being empty, having a lot of knowledge and using it for self-gratification. I gave, I always gave, but giving what you have easily to give isn't sacrifice. It makes you feel good and it'll make you look good. Um, for a 15-year-old boy, so, excuse me, people, uh, I would suggest the miseducation of uh, Black youth in America and born in captivity. Born in captivity definitely uh, will give you a great insight with a 15-year-old boy. Also, uh, look to what to reach out to me. Uh, reach out to me at um, that email address, and I'll share with you. And if there's anything that I can do to help, I will. Uh, but it's so important to reach these babies. Um, look. There's so much that needs to be done. There's so much that needs to be done. We've got to be committed. We're not going to beg our way out of this. We're not going to vote our way out of this. Uh, we've been voting long before the voting rights bill of the 1960s. I mean, we got the right initially with the 15th Amendment, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but it started with the 13th Amendment and then it went on. Uh, what we were dealing with in the 60s was the South uh, had taken uh, and gone to great lengths to inhibit blacks from voting. And so that's what those federal laws was about. It wasn't the first time that we got to vote. But since the voting rights bill and the civil rights bills of the early 60s, we've been voting now for 60 years and we've actually gone backwards. So we've got to understand that. Um, we've definitely got to understand that we're going to have to take some action, uh, some direct action. We're going to have to invest in ourselves. We've got to get to a point of collective uh, incorporate, uh, uh, corporate uh, e economics, uh, black group economics, uh, building and recycling the black dollar. We've got to get into 
holistically educating our youth. Uh, that is so imperative that we do that. We are trusting. I think it was Malcolm that says only a fool would trust his enemy to educate his children. And yet we do it daily. So in essence, we are failing our babies by exposing them to a system that is diametrically opposed to their natural social progression and development. We have so much that we don't understand that hurts us. Uh, One of the biggest lies that was ever told was what you don't know won't hurt you. What you don't know will kill you. And we're living that every day. So look, I'm going to get off of here. I definitely appreciate you guys stopping by. Share the video, do whatever. Support the work we're doing. I'm going to throw this thing in here one more time. Support the work we're doing at the Odyssey Project. Go to the site and give, or you can give directly through our cash app account uh, for the Odyssey Project. But whatever you do, show the work, because I tell you, number one is the research we're doing is absolutely necessary. Also, this tour we need to do. I'm not going on a lecture tour. That's not what I'm doing. I'm going on a tour where I'm going to spend seven to 10 days in each city of that tour, helping people construct programs that is going to be life-saving mechanisms and outreach uh, resources for those in the community, especially the children. And so the Black Man Lead Rite of Passage Initiative, the Restoring Ghetto's Forgotten Daughter Initiative, the Black Community Empowerment Initiative, those are things that need to be done on a national level so that then we can create a network between these cities so no city is standing as an island. And it takes effort and energy and money. So again, uh, we're asking you to do that. Don't forget, get the books. I think there are a lot uh, that can be done uh, I read to you. I don't have the list in front of me now. Maybe I do somewhere around here. Um, the list of the cities that are on. I want to share that with you if I got it. I, I think it's in this. So much going on. Some, I did the first 10 based off of what I knew about statistics. And then uh, here we go. Memphis, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Charlotte, Chicago, St. Louis, Miami, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Detroit, uh, other select, uh, other uh, uh, requests were Clarksdale, Mississippi, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so I want to, I, I really want to touch those uh, with programs that are already uh, created. We just need to help people implement them. Uh, show them how to work, how to react and engage our children. There's so much to learn about our young boys. I've done a great deal of work uh, in preparing and building out Black Man Lead, but it all started with just simply trying to understand what was the driving force behind African-American adolescent and young adult male violence. Not only can I now predict it in individuals, I can mitigate it. The power of proper racial socialization It's been shown to be huge in that area. Also in reducing the risk of going to prison. Reducing the risk of dropping out of school. It's so important that we attack this. So on that note, I'm going to get out here. You guys have been absolutely awesome. Y'all take care and hopefully I'll see you guys soon. I'm out.